You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. It's good to gather together this morning as a church family. We're going through the whole Bible in a year uh, just so we can understand God's story that he's revealed to us through the scriptures. We're going to look at Exodus today. I was actually hoping my little walkout music would be Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals, but that's okay. Uh, maybe uh, next time we go through Exodus. Uh, but we're just rolling through each book of the Bible, and I'm looking forward to that as we're just really early and only week two into this. So before we jump in, book of Exodus, let's pray together, and then we'll continue in our service. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given to us. What an act of grace it is that we have the scriptures. We ask to be found faithful. We ask you, all the churches in our city as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, that because of what happens in Tallahassee today, that more people will know who you are and what you've done for them in Christ. We ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, and we ask you to speak through me now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in the book of Exodus, we see that on display, God's glory, we see God's judgment, we see God's faithfulness, we see God's mercy, we see God's great salvation, all happening like, almost like in a Hollywood movie script right in front of us. In fact, if there was ever a book of the Bible to kind of be the version of Netflix binge watching, it would be the book of Exodus. We just kind of keep working through what's coming next. I don't want to turn it off yet. You know, I want to keep reading. This is that type of book in the Bible. It really does present itself that way with lots of action, lots of events. Uh, you see an underlog, underdog leader in Moses, a leader of people in slavery, stand up to the world's most powerful man. You see hail and frogs and flies and a river, uh, the great Nile River uh, become blood. All these things happening to the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's quite the story. And Hollywood even seems to be fascinated with it. Uh, there might be more, but I counted three different Hollywood films that have come out about the book of Exodus. There was Charlton Heston's famous Ten Commandments that came out in 1956. The Prince of Egypt, came out as an animated version in 1998. I remember actually going to the theater to see that. And more recently, in 2014, Exodus, God, and Kings came out. Has anyone seen any, any of those three movies before? Heston or the... Actually, a lot of people have. Uh, Hollywood's been fascinated with it. So we're, what happens out of the gate here is the first two chapters of Exodus really set the stage for the rest of the book. Israel, as God had promised in Genesis to Abraham, is starting to expand into a great nation. Multiple people, descendants, they're starting to have more and more population, and they're in slavery in Egypt during this time, uh, and because Pharaoh sees what is taking place and starts oppressing them to seek to stop their growth. So this is the early, basically, uh, signs of this oppression of the people that God had made, the people that God had declared his own, and now Pharaoh does not like the fact that they're actually seeing this growth happen. So what does Pharaoh do after oppressing them, putting them into slavery? He then goes to extreme measures, genocide, population control by death. Here's what it says. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first name was Shifra, and the second his name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Then we come where it narrows it on one figure, where we see the birth of Moses. Moses was born and was actually found in the river by Pharaoh's daughter. And it's presented as a climatic reversal of Pharaoh's oppressive attempts where she saves the baby. 
is also hints to us early on in the book that this Moses that locks in is actually going to be a key figure in this book. At the end of chapter 2, we see that God heard the groaning of his people. That God's people that he had promised, he had set apart for himself, this new nation that he was making, they were under deep oppression. And what did they do in that time? They cried out to their God. And it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And it really prepares us, this early part of the book, to see God act even further on his promises to bring Israel out of Egypt into the promised land that he had prepared for them. So even though Pharaoh is oppressing Israel, God's promises of Israel's growth and deliverance from Egypt, we could say now they're beginning to take shape. We're starting to really see the reality of all God set in stone in the book of Genesis to send forward his people. So Genesis, again, records, as we said last week, quick review, God's promise that Abraham would become a great nation. His descendants, as far as the stars in the sky, the grains in the sand, he can't even count how many people will be blessed because of his family. Exodus describes the fulfillment of that promise now in motion. The promise was not abandoned, even though we're told in this book it had been generations since anyone even knew who Joseph was, who ends the book of Genesis. Moses, being found by Pharaoh's daughter, was put into a place of royalty, of great privilege, rather than being oppressed as a slave, as a Hebrew person. But we're told this is what happened. The Israelites, chapter 2, groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning. How amazing. Their prayers ascended to God. Like when you pray, it's not just words you're saying. It's not just a tradition or a ritual. Your prayers actually ascend to God. You ever thought about how incredible that is that our creator actually hears our words? Like when we pray to him, they actually go to him. I love that, ascended to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered. Now by remember, it doesn't mean that God was forgetful. It's basically God reiterating what he already had told them making his promise sure, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with, J with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew that they were his people, and that they were suffering. So the book starts off out of the gate with a focus on God's merciful character, and the fact that he always remembers his people. This is what he promises them. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And here's God's greatest goal over everything. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. God wants to make his name known, his greatness known, his glory known, his mighty saving power known. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give. He's a promise-keeping God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. He reiterates, I am the Lord. Moses told us to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. God promises to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, but the Israelites struggle to believe that in their oppression. And you can sympathize with why. God's going to deliver you. Yeah, right. Look what's going on all around us. Injustice. Oppression. He even tried to have our, our, our sons killed. Like, God's going to deliver us? I mean, yeah, we've heard that story before, but like, this is the reality that's in front of us right now. And I don't really want to hear your 
your God talk right now. Moses, even though he was raised in great privilege and royalty based on Pharaoh's daughter finding him, when he saw Hebrew being abused by an Egyptian, Moses actually killed that Egyptian and fled off. Here's a very flawed person who committed murder that we see in chapter 3, God's going to speak to through a burning bush and tell him to go back into Egypt, the place he had fled to escape because he was a murderer. Go back into Egypt. Here's God using the most unlikely of people. Go back into Egypt. Go tell the most powerful man in the world to let my people, who I've made a covenant with, who I've set apart for myself, to let my people go. Moses is like, me? I'm not very qualified to do that. My skills are minimal. In fact, what the heck am I going to tell him? Who am I going to tell him sent me? I'm just going to show up in his office and be like, hey, uh, let God's people go. It's like, well, who is God? The Egyptians have many gods. He says, tell him I am sent you. As in I am who I am. Three different parts of the Hebrew word to be. The God who is, the God who was, and the God who will ever be is the one who sent you. The God of gods, the God who triumphs over all these lowercase g false gods that you've made yourself with human hands. God provides a sign to get Moses to get it. Moses' staff turns into a serpent. Then he tells him he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So Moses goes back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh exactly what God told him to bring concerning the good news. And in this next section, God states that Pharaoh's resistance, saying, no, I'm not going to let your people go. They're going to stay oppressed, stay under my control, that it's going to provide an opportunity for God to showcase his greatness and his glory, his salvation of his people by bringing judgment upon Egypt. Moses' message before Pharaoh was clear. God said, let his people go. He cast down the serpent. God has them put down his staff again, turns into a serpent Pharaoh still refuses to believe. He's still stubborn in his sin and his idolatry. In ancient Egypt, which I find fascinating, the serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh's power, a snake. So here is God actually using what is viewed as great in their eyes, the greatness of Pharaoh, and saying, man, I control even this. I'm powerful even over the symbol of your greatness and your majesty and your kingdom reign here on earth. So what happens is he initiates plagues, in judgment, as Pharaoh's heart is hardened, to bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt until he will let his people go. The first ones in Exodus chapter 7 records really the first time we fully see God begin to judge him. The Nile, the great Nile River, a symbol of prestige and power, is turned into blood by God. For this time, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. And here's the goal always. Then, I will, then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. That I am God. That I want to make my name great. That is the goal of all this. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague. And you would have been obliterated from the earth. Here's God showing his power and actually showing some mercy. He's like, you know what I could have done for you saying no to me? For you rebelling against me because you oppressing my people? Because your idolatry, I could have obliterated, that's the word he uses, obliterated you right then and there, but I haven't yet. I've let you live for this purpose. Why? To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. 
We see God's glory and his desire to make it known to the world. We also see his mercy on display. Where he told them, I could have done this to you by now. I could have taken you out by now, but I haven't. Instead, I'm sending my messenger with you with a sign to warn you, to get you to come to your senses. Now, we often speak of God as being the God of the second chance. We thank, thank him for that, right? But here he's the God of the ninth chance. There's going to be ten plagues that take place before Pharaoh says, go, get out of here, get out of my land. Pharaoh continues, though, to say no. So, so we get to now, which is probably one of the most significant events in all the Old Testament, in, in Exodus chapter 12. In fact, if you asked me uh, to make a Mount Rushmore of the most significant events in all of the Bible, I would probably at least debate putting this on there. This significant tenth plague that's going to happen it would even create a new calendar for the Hebrew nation as a result of it. And an observance and a festival they would hold to for the rest of all, all of creation concerning this religion, this observance. And it's the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. One of the most intense, sobering events in all of the Bible. Here's what we see. The Lord said to Moses, again, nine times Pharaoh said no. Even though there's been flies and frogs and hail. After frogs, I'd have been like, we're good. Get out of here. But flies, I mean, Nile River, I mean, so many things that have happened. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, who is Moses' brother, partner in crime in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. God's creating this nation he's going to make, a new calendar. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person in the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. Very specific God is in what he's doing here. He cares about the details of worship. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheeps or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. You're going to shed the blood of these animals. They must take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They're to eat, they're to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it till morning, and a part of it left until morning, you must burn. God's very specific with them about what they're supposed to do. Here's how you must eat it. Also, you must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It's the Lord's Passover. And they're going, what in the world is going on? We're going to do as you say. Well, then God tells them exactly what's going on. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This here is the final sign of God's judgment on Egypt. and be the death of the firstborn 
throughout the land. God here is judging Egypt. Now, I am fully aware that when you read a story like that, it can be hard to swallow. We don't pretend that we don't wrestle with questions. We don't go, how, I was raised, you know, loving God. How can that happen? I mean, it just doesn't make very much sense to us on the surface. We want to be a church where we can always think, that, hey, we can think thoughts and ask questions and, you know, talk to somebody afterwards and, and be able to work through your doubts and work through your wonders and your struggles and, and all those type of things. And it's really important to know what's happening here. God is punishing sin and idolatry. And one thing that's easy for us to do in our kind of Western, maybe sentimental view of God is to minimize the significance of sin. These people were not just sinning against the state or against somebody else, even though all those things matter. They were sinning against God. The holy, perfect God of the universe they were sinning against. So God is going to judge them because of their sin. And also on top of that, even more than that, we see that God is keeping a promise. A promise that he's sworn to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their children would receive the land of Canaan as an inheritance, yet they've been stuck in Egypt under oppression for centuries. So it's time for God to get them out and bring them home. But first, there's one last plague, and yes, it's severe, and we shouldn't pretend like it's not. We shouldn't just explain it away. It, it is severe. And see, with all or at least most of the previous plagues, Israel has been exempted. Their cattle didn't die like the Egyptian cattle did during one of the plagues. Their crops weren't hailed on. Even their land didn't go dark. They didn't have the frogs infest them. They didn't have the flies infest them. They hadn't done anything to avoid. They hadn't done anything on their own to avoid these plagues. It is by sovereign grace that God, in his cho choosing of them as his people, aimed away from them. This final plague will be different. This plague is aimed at everyone this time. And apart from some true unseen provision, God's going to strike down all the firstborn in Egypt, including the firstborn of Israel. Why? Because even though they might be God's people under a promise, they have sinned against him. They're sinners too. Ezekiel 20, looking back, tells us that they've been worshiping the false gods of Egypt. God can't ignore sin. So on that severe, intense, traumatic Passover night, God devised a way in which he could both be just and merciful at the same time. And how does this happen? It happens by salvation through substitution. Salvation through substitution. That they would not receive death because their home would be passed over because the blood of the lamb stood in its place. The message of the, lamb, of the tenth plague is that God is holy and just. That's the message of the plague. The message of the Passover is that God is merciful. If you apply its blood of the lamb to your doorsteps, when God sees the blood, he will pass over you. And that's the meaning that Israel is spared not because they're better than Egypt's sons, but because the spotless lamb dies in the place of God's people and the blood covers their doors. Not even Israel could escape God's judgment without a blood sacrifice of a lamb. The death of the lamb, the Passover lamb, salvation through substitution. 
And according to the New Testament, the message of the Passover is also the message of Good Friday. That is why John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, it says the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who stands in our place, who gives us salvation by substitution, where God will not punish us as our sins deserve, as he did the Egyptians. Why? Because he has sent one to redeem us. Salvation through substitution. Some people today are still as stubborn as Pharaoh, who continue to say no to God when he has provided this way to be removed from death and live forever through the Lamb. See, in the previous nine plagues, we read that Moses had an outstretched hand that brought destruction. In the tenth plague, God himself causes death. And Exodus makes clear that every false god will one day be crushed. One day, every knee will bow to the true creator. He's accomplishing his good purposes of redeeming a people who are his people to himself. See, the righteous judgment of God is, I know it's not a very popular topic today, but we actually want it whether we realize it or not. We want a God who sets the standards and executes judgment on the guilty, don't we? Without a sovereign God of justice, we have no hope that ultimate justice will come. I mean, think of the world's oppressors, the abusers, the traffickers, the murderers, the racists. A God of perfect justice will judge every evil deed. And we can trust that we can endure this unjust world because God is the one who has the final word over it. This is the greatest picture of redemption in all of the Old Testament. Point us towards the fact that Jesus also redeems us from slavery, ultimately in bondage to sin, by liberating the people through his blood. But he's greater than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses ever could be. Mark Dever writes this. This is important. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. Exodus challenges the common notion that God treats all people the same way. We made that up. God's never said that. Here he's working to save a special people, his chosen people. He mysteriously, this is still Dever, he mysteriously and graciously chooses to extend mercy to some. And no one can require mercy from him. Why? It's his mercy. Since it's his mercy, he's the one that gets to decide how he's going to display it, how he's going to show it, how he's going to give it. We see that after the Passover happened, all the Israelites had their sandals on their staffs ready to go. Pharaoh said, get out of here. I'm done trying to fight this God. They did this just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On that same day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. The exodus is in play. Liberation is in play. We see this. God put true standards into place, holiness for his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, Concentrate, consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal, it is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day when you came out of Egypt. Remember this day at the place of slavery. If the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand, nothing leaven may be eaten. And for generations and generations, and Jewish people to this day, they have and celebrate the Passover. Now we, by God's grace, know the ultimate Passover is Christ. So anytime we take the Lord's Supper, we are acknowledging not the Passover of Egypt, even though that's important, and it points us to it, but the Passover of the substitutionary lamb that allowed God to not punish us as our sins deserved. 
So now here's Moses leading God's people of bondage to their promised land. It's happening. He's going to do it through a pillar. It says they came out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. They're on their way. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. They had one job to do now, follow God. Pillar of smoke, there he is, pillar of fire. That's how he's revealing himself right now. Follow him. Even if you don't know the exact way he's going, follow him. Follow by faith, follow by trust. You might say, well, that'd be nice to have God in a pillar. That'd, be, that'd make my life a lot easier. But the truth is that we don't need a cloud now. Why? Because we have God's word. We have God's word. And we have the Holy Spirit to continue to plant God's word in our hearts and minds and to help us to understand. One of the greatest things the Holy Spirit does for us is illuminate the scriptures so people who were once lost are now found, who were once dead in their sins, now alive, can understand and receive the words of God. Then there's a little mind change for Pharaoh, and he decides that he's going to actually go chase God's people with his army. Exodus 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's God's, like, we need to be okay. I know it's a wrestle, we need to wrestle with that. We need to be okay with the reality that God's greatest chief end is his own name and his own glory. That's what he is about. By the time they get to the Red Sea, Israel is already on their way out of Egypt, and they're already starting to forget all that God had done for them. They're already having their doubts. Look at this. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, it's because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians. That's got to be better than this. Back to slavery, that's got to be better than this. I would have, it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, something we see throughout the Bible for God's children, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's not God's will for his people to live their lives in fear. Or to be afraid. He said, stand firm. See the Lord's salvation. That he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. They're probably like, yeah, we'll never see him again because we're going to be dead. No, no, no. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Be a person of faith. So we need the gospel every week. We need to remind you of God's faithfulness. We need to have our fears lessened. We need to be recharged together as God's people. Especially when it gets difficult to follow the Lord. And here is Pharaoh who once sought to drown Hebrew boys. Now about to have his people, his army, cross the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. I said, I'm leading you, pillar in the sky. Why, why, are you, why are you bothering me right now? As for you, lift your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. So the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I said, hey, I got this. I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and horsemen. And the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. 
the pillar of cloud moved from, the, from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. What was God's chief end? So they would know that he is God. And here they're saying, we got to get out of here because they are God's people and he's fighting for them. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand over the sea so water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea the water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. God said, you will never see those people again. But the Israelites, I love that word in the Bible. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. They walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. This is actually a picture of us, a symbolic picture of baptism in the New Testament. That when we get baptized, when we set up our baptismal over here, we are figuratively walking through the waters, going through the waters to new life. As God's people, it's not the water that saves us, it's God that saves us. That symbolism of that taking place before everyone, of God's greatness and glory. And there must be a distinction, God says, between Egypt and between his people. Now remember, God is not just rescuing a people, he's making a nation for himself. He said this to Pharaoh earlier, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. The sign will take place tomorrow. Buckle up. It says, but against all the Israelites, chapter 11, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl so that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between his people and the people of the world, between Egypt and Israel. He wants to distinguish his people from all the other peoples on earth. So God gives them by his grace a law and covenant because they're under a new ruler, not the ruler of this world, not under Pharaoh, but under God himself. We see that Moses went up to the mountain to God. They're at Mount Sinai now where they're camping out. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, it all belongs to me, you will be mine. Like you're my actual people, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all the Lord has spoken. Moses brought the people's words, actually God's words, 
to the people and then takes the people's words back to God. God gives him the law under what's called the Mosaic Covenant. These are how he will rule over his people. The purpose of the covenant and the instruction God gives them is to rule in the midst of them as their Lord, to guide them, to instruct them. We also see in the law our need for God. We're not good at keeping those things. The New Testament calls the law a tutor that helps us to see our need for grace, our need for Christ. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. On the third day of the morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast in the ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down to warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Like you can't see God and live because he is holy and you are not. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who came to the Lord must consecrate themselves. No one's exempt from this. Or it will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. Like, we're not smart enough to do this on our own. We need you to put like a boundary up, God, like a reminder for us not to approach you on our own. The Lord replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them the words of God. And then he gave them from God the Ten Commandments. That start off like this. Then God spoke all these words. Here's my law for my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Like, that's the understanding. That's the driver for all the Ten Commandments. To first know this, that I have spoken to you, my people. I am your God, and here's what I've done for you. And Mosaic Law, as it's called, still functions for us as Scripture. It teaches us about God's glorious plan for redemption, making us wise, the salvation in Christ. It also shows us how to live wisely as God's new covenant people. So you see, when he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets, the testimony stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. How amazing is that? And God would tell them things in this law, like if you see your neighbor's donkey, or, or someone, excuse me, if you see someone that you don't like, your enemy's donkey, and it's having a hard time, you need to go actually help your enemy's donkey. That was against any wisdom of the world at that time. Why would you help your enemy's animal? You usually wanted to die, right? God's saying, my people are going to be completely different nation. He said, look after the resident alien, because you yourself know that you one time were a resident alien in Egypt. God's people are going to be different. He's going to go against our politics and going to go against everything we know. He's building a different nation, a different way to live for a new nation, completely radical from the rest of the world. In chapter 24, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and he gets very in detailed instructions from God. We'll see in chapters 25 through 31. Very specific. To build the Ark of the Covenant, what that will look like. Tables in the tabernacle, lamps, offerings, what consecration is going to look like. And although God gives Israel the law and comes to dwell in their midst, they're not going to be faithful in their covenant to him. 
mean, after showcasing his power and glory and freeing them from slavery, God gathers them at Mount Sinai at the foot, communicates the law to them. They're going to show how they're to live, how they're to worship, that God cares about all these things. And the book actually ends with Israel being told how to construct the tabernacle, where God is actually going to dwell with his people. It's basically a tent. God's going to distinguish who his people really are and, and who they only are externally. Because something happened, even though God had done all these things for them. These people, his people, Moses was gone too long, 40 days, 40 nights, they got nervous. So what did they do? They asked Aaron to make them a golden calf to worship. A false god. The people who saw God part the Red Sea and kill all the firstborn of Egypt and letting his people go are now building an idol for themselves. And God gets hot. Somebody asked me, somebody said to me after the last service, how dumb. Red Sea and all the things they saw happen, they build an idol. I'm like, yeah, how dumb of us. We've been saved from our sins and we still sin. It's not any different. So Moses pleads on God's behalf to not kill the people for their sins, their idolatry. So God in his grace comes down and renews his covenant with his people. Basically drawing a line between who really belongs to him in their hearts and who just externally belongs to him. The tabernacle is established, the tent where God dwelled on earth and communed with his people as Israel's divine king. And they, he says in verse 29, and they will know that I'm the Lord your God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Don't miss this. God wants to be with his people. God is a relational God. He wants to dwell with his people. The only thing that keeps that from being possible is sin. Here's what one writer wrote. If our world understood what the tabernacle represents, it wouldn't search for the transcendent in celebrities or athletes or technology or astrology who would rejoice that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that we have seen his glory. How have we done that now? We call it Christmas. John 1, the word became flesh, that meaning Jesus, and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God renews his covenant with his people and continues to send them along the way in the wilderness. They're going to have a lot of bumps along the way, as we'll see next week, based on their idol worship. But reflecting back, here's what Nehemiah wrote centuries later. We need to be reminded of God's goodness, reminded of God's faithfulness. He says, you, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers in the depths like a stone in raging water. In other words, God, as your people, who you have made for yourself centuries later, we can trust you because you are good. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said no one can ever snatch his people out of his hand because there's an eternal covenant of people who are going to fail and mess up all the way. So our response now is this is who you are. This is what you've done. 
now rather than build altars of cows that we worship. I'm not going to believe lies. I got to go around God, not to God for the things I'm looking for. I'm not going to think there's more to be gained by disobeying God. There is to be gained by obeying him. I'm not going to wish I was back in Egypt because things were easier then. Instead, I'm going to say Jesus is Lord and worship him, the great deliverer of God's people. Let's pray together.